Have you all ever been put in social media jail, like you've been suspended from social media for a time because of something you said or did or whatever? Well, I was recently suspended, had my account locked on Twitter (laughs) for 12 hours because I told a black guy who uh, seemingly is a Hitler apologist to bang his head against a cement block. I've got some explaining to do. Let's get into it. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Ayana Explains It All, the podcast hosted by me, Ayana a Black Muslim lady lawyer raised in the hood, living in the suburbs currently of the beautiful state of Ohio, talking to you people every week, breaking down big concepts, having dynamic conversations with myself (laughs) about things going on in the world. I talk about mental health. I talk about politics. I talk about religion. I talk about my kids. I talk about your kids. I encourage you, by the way, to share this podcast with your friends and family. Let them know that Ayana Explains It All is available on 12 different streaming platforms for your listening pleasure or displeasure, depending on how you feel about what I have to say. As you heard in the intro, I can be a little mean and I also cuss a little bit. So if you don't want your kids hearing that kind of smut, Don't let them listen to this with you. Although some of the things I talk about, I feel like teenagers should hear these things, really. Um, But definitely listen, subscribe, rate, review my podcast. Help me to grow my baby. I've been doing this since February 2022. And I'm trying to get a bigger audience. And so I talk about a range of topics because I don't want to be narrow in my focus. I want people to find something, people from all walks of life, to find something that they can relate to here. And today's subject is one of those things. Today's subject is one of those things. You can find Ayana Explains It All on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, my flagship Anchor FM. You can find me on iHeartRadio. Just click the link in my bio on my social media. I'm Ayana Explains It All Pod on TikTok, Ayana Explains It All on Instagram with an underscore between each word. You can find me on Facebook. My Facebook page is Ayana Explains It All. And my name is spelled A-Y-A-N-A. Let's get into it. So this has been a very harrowing year for some of us. One person in particular I really don't want to say his name on this podcast, but let me tell you something about this dude. Kanye West, also known as Ye, apparently some judge thought it was okay to allow him to change his name to just those two letters. And that's fine. Call yourself whatever you want. But guess what? You're still you. If you're Kanye or Ye or Kane or Kenny, whatever the fuck, you're still you. And who you are is a piece of shit. Sorry. I was a huge fan of Kanye West. Huge, huge, from the beginning, huge fan. Kanye West came to Cleveland in, oh gosh, I want to say it was 2016, 2016, 2017, something like that. But it was the first concert I had attended since I was in high school. I, you know, whatever, for whatever it's worth. I grew up in a conservative religious environment, conservative religious community. Going to concerts and shit wasn't really something that was encouraged, but I did go. I worked for the city newspaper, so I I had to go to um, this concert that was the West Coast tribute to Eazy-E featuring Tupac Shakur. And that was a big deal for me, but I, I didn't go to concerts after that. It was either the lack of money or I, you know, I couldn't go by myself because I was a teenage girl, blah, 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 blah. But when I became an adult, I just didn't, I never made time for it. Never had time, never had money. I'm a single mother, et cetera, et cetera. I decided I'm going to go see Kanye West in concert. Because again, I'm a huge fan. 
the experience was lively. Let me tell you, um, someone threw up while I was waiting in line to show my ticket and the vomit got all over me. I had to go into the bathroom and wash myself off before the concert. That right there, some would call a sign that maybe you shouldn't be there, but it doesn't even matter because I wanted to have fun. My kids had a babysitter. First time I was going to have fun in a very long time. And so that's what I did. The entire place smelled like marijuana because, you know, <laughs> it's Cleveland. But um, the experience was fun. And I believe shortly after that, his wife at the time, Kim Kardashian, was uh, robbed at gunpoint in Paris. And so he put the entire tour on hold after that. And I was like, wow, I'm so lucky that I got to see him before he put the tour on hold. But it seems like that was like the the catalyst for another breakdown for him. I mean, something like that happens. That's trauma. Even if you weren't there, it happened to someone you love. It happened to your spouse. You're scared. It's traumatic. But things like this happen to people all the time. And it doesn't lead them to become whatever it is Kanye West is now. He's a Christian, great, but his behavior and his words don't sound like he is very, I don't want to say Christian-like, because I know a lot of Christians, and I know a lot of Muslims too, and we can be assholes, all of us. But when you say that you're one thing, and then you preach this one thing, you should also act that way, right? And he's been acting really, really ugly especially since he separated from his ex-wife now, Kim Kardashian. And he's been saying some pretty ugly things about people. And it started when Trump was running for office. Everyone remembers when he said slavery was a choice and then he decided to run for president. And then when his stuff wasn't working out, he blamed us too. So it was our fault. He doesn't get support from the black community. He sells sneakers. He sells clothes through the Gap. He, I don't know if he ever did, but I don't remember hearing any Black-owned brand saying, hey, yeah, Kanye West uh, hit us up to work with him, to collaborate with him on his sneaker business or his clothing business. He has his own music. Um, he has his own music production company. Great. Makes music for a lot of artists. Great. But when it came to his clothing and his shoes, he went to the top, top designers. He went to Balenciaga. He went to The Gap. He went to Adidas, made billions of dollars. Now that he's broken and broke, he wants to collaborate with Black-owned brands. Hey, do whatever the hell you want. But the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy is very apparent. It's apparent to me that it's not until you are on your knees, until you have been brought down to your knees and by your own actions, by the way, the consequences of your own actions. It's, it's, it's interesting how people go back to the community when they've been brought to their knees. It's the same way how black people, when they're going through a crisis, having an existential crisis, they go to Africa. They end up in Ghana or Senegal or Nigeria or wherever the hell. And they, you know, bathe in the water and they're dancing with the, the natives and they're taking pictures. Oh, look, there are black people. Oh, look, camels and giraffes and horses. And, and it's like, are you? Listen, first of all, I know these people are happy to have your tourist dollars, but also leave them people alone when you're having a crisis, when you're in mess. Those people can't fix you. The water, the Atlantic Ocean can't fix you. The desert can't fix you. You are you. You're going to take you to Africa. You're going to take you to Chicago. You're going to take you to Los Angeles. You take you wherever you go. So when you are the problem, there is nothing that can cure you of that except for you, unfortunately. And some people just don't have it in them to be better, to do better, and certainly to say better things. Like, what are we looking at with Kanye West now? And I don't even want to talk about him this whole time. but. What are we looking at now? He's made these incredibly awful statements 
in the press, in interviews about Jewish people. He said all kinds of, and and this came out about him when he was working on, I believe it was his Yay album. People who were working with him said that he espoused a desire to have his album, that album, be called Hitler. And he had to be talked out of it. He had to be talked out of naming that album Hitler. That he, he said that he admired Hitler's teachings in the Mein Kampf. And as he said in recent statements, with he was on the Alex Jones show, he said that he sympathizes with them and Hitler invented highways and the microphone and there's some good in everybody. And he didn't really order the killing of six million Jews and Nazis are good people and blah, 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 on and on and on and on. So it is clear to me that despite having all of these trials and tribulations, he's not going to stop. He hasn't learned. He's not going to stop. He believes that he is right about things. And you know why? Because there are not enough people who look like him pushing back on his rhetoric. And the statement that I made before about the telling the guy to go <laughs> smash, <laughs> I'm even laughing at myself because it's like, I have had enough. I have had enough. I have had enough of black people defending anti-Semitism, of defending anti-Semitic rhetoric, of defending the indefensible. Now, I, I'm going to tell you guys this story because uh, it matters here. I grew up, as I said before, in a conservative religious community and environment and household. I grew up in a, in a very black city, East Cleveland, Ohio. Empower, empowerment and empowering black people, it's very important because of what they were dealing with. They were dealing with white flight. They were dealing with white systemic racism that was essentially crippling the community. And it has. White flight caused the loss of a major tax base in the city. And the city is suffering. It has been for a long time. So it was important. So it was important for black people to feel empowered in the 70s and 80s and 90s and the 2000s. It's very important. It was very important. It was drilled into us that we're black, we're beautiful, we're amazing, you know, lift every voice and sing. And when when it was Black History Month at a black school, I mean, we had pageants, honey. We had competitions. We had all kinds of things. It wasn't just, oh, here's something about Martin Luther King Jr. And here's something about Harriet Tubman. No, we were in it. So I believe that my black was just as important or even more important than your white. I took pride, took a lot of pride in my race, and I still do. I still take pride in being black. I know it's, it sounds, you know, because we're all American, we're all human beings. But in America, it means something. It means something. And yes, I am Muslim, but I am also black. And it means something. During Ramadan, as a kid, we were not allowed to watch like any kind of secular TV or anything. And so me and my siblings would watch Eyes on the Prize. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this PBS special. It's called Eyes on the Prize. It's all about the civil rights movement in the United States. And I remember one of the things that really stuck with me was the episode when they talked about Emmett Till. And when they showed Emmett Till in his coffin and his face. Oh my God. That shook me. That shook me. That really shook me. And it stuck with me. And I was angry. I, that, that made me angry. And then, you know, in my mother's library in our, in our, in my childhood home, there were books by Eldridge Cleaver, Gordon Parks. There was, I mean, she bought the book, the Eyes on the Prize companion book. There were all these books. There was, you know, books by Malcolm X, speeches of Malcolm X. There were all these things. And I was reading all of these things. And I'm like, yes, oh, my God, the fire, the passion. Yes, being black is wonderful. 
I'm going to take this everywhere I go. I was in the 11th grade in high school, honors English with Mrs. Linda Goldstein, one of the best teachers I have ever had. All of my English teachers in high school were wonderful. I never had a bad English teacher, even in junior high school. Anyway, she uh, was, is Jewish. And one of the books we had to read over the summer was Night, a book written by Elie Wiesel. And the book Night is about his harrowing experience of living in a concentration camp and what happened to his family and how he survived. And I knew about this. Again, I was raised by a history teacher. So I knew, but I also knew that during World War II, Muslims in Northern Africa had been placed in internment camps by Mussolini, but that people didn't talk about that. They didn't talk about what Mussolini had done to the Muslims in Northern Africa when he was the ruler of Italy. They didn't talk about how fascism affected the Arab world and how he pushed Muslims off of their land and killed them and destroyed their homes. Nobody really talked about that. You didn't hear about it. But I knew because I had seen a movie and read stories about Umar Mukhtar. And the movie, the name of the movie stars Anthony Quinn. Uh, can I just say, having Anthony Quinn star as a North African Arab is peak Hollywood. That is some Hollywood shit right there. But the name of the movie is Lion of the Desert. If you get a chance, find it somewhere. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere, but I watched it on VHS and beta. Obviously, I'm that old. So I knew, I knew what had happened to Jewish people, but I also knew what had happened to Muslims. And I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, we're, you know, it's, it's great that we're talking about this. It's great that we're finally hearing about this, but what about Muslims? What about the Muslims? And so my jackass, <laughs> one day when she's talking about it, like she's really, you know, drilling it into us. And I raised my hand. I'll never forget this. I raised my hand and I said, people are always talking about Jews in the Holocaust, but nobody ever talks about what happened to Muslims under Mussolini. I said, nobody ever talks about that. And it's true. Even today, people still don't talk about it. People still don't talk about it. But <laughs> she was so taken aback. And I, I apologized to her later because it was really, it was, I was such an angry, I was such an angry young person. I, I was filled with so much like, um, I don't know, it, I don't want to call it passion and fire, but it, a lot of it was like, well, how come people aren't talking about this? And why aren't people talking about this? And I'm black and you're going to hear me and you're going to listen and you're not going to be racist against me. I was very defensive, very defensive when it came to my race and my religion. And so we talked about it. Me and the teacher talked about it after school. And she said, OK, you want people to know about this? You're going to do a presentation. on it." And so. We watched Lion of the Desert, and I had to do a presentation on Mussolini and his advent against Muslims in Northern Africa. Boy, that was a time. That was a time. Woo, see, kids, don't open your big mouths unless you want to do more work in school. <laughs> but I'm so on the one hand, I'm glad that I said something because people got to understand that there was more to what happened during World War II than just Hitler put Jewish people in concentration camps. It was so much more than that. But, you know, the themes you get in, in, in high school are very generic. It's when you go to college that maybe you learn a little bit more about the world and about the, the nation, about wars and et cetera, et cetera. But in high school, they have a very narrow uh, guide that they give you. Because they don't have a lot of time. They don't want to get stuck on one thing. But it just seems to me like a lot more 
should be talked about when it comes to these wars, when it comes to the Holocaust. Like, for instance, with the dude who's a, a Hitler apologist, who's a Nazi sympathizer, who I told to go smash his head on his... I mean, you're talking, you're a black man. You have no idea how much Hitler despised anything that was not, number one, German, and number two, a wasp, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. He only, he only respected and liked white, not just any kind of white people, because he didn't like Catholics. He didn't like Jehovah's Witnesses. He didn't like gypsies. He obviously didn't like Jewish people. He didn't like black Germans. So it wasn't just ha that you had to be German to gain his favor. No, you had to be white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And then you had to swear your allegiance to him. So really having a religion didn't even matter because he was your God. He was your leader. He was your God. He was your everything. You had to do what, what he told you to do or he was going to kill you. There's a, an original show on Amazon Prime called The Man in the High Castle. And it's about essentially what could have happened if the Axis powers during World War II, that is Italy, Japan, and Germany, had won the war. And listen, it's scary. It is scary. But what you will notice in, when it comes to the German part of the story there are no black people in power. There are no black people around. There's a reason for that. Black people were not valued, treasured, treated well. Even in the United States during that time, black people were not treated well. I mean, the armed services were segregated. And remember uh, the story of Jesse Owens when he ran um, in the Olympics in 19, was it 1930, 1932? Hitler wouldn't shake his hand, not just because he was black, but because he was not German and he wasn't shaking the hands or congratulating anyone who was not German. And the IOC got on his ass and they said, hey, if you want, you know, the goodies that come with this, if you want us to come back here or whatever the hell it is, if you don't want us to pull out, then you're going to be nice to these people. And so he gave a little, you know, nod or whatever the hell to Jesse Owens because he had to, not because he wanted to. He didn't give a fuck about Jesse Owens. He was a black piece of shit to Hitler. But back home, FDR wasn't, he, wasn't any better. He wouldn't invite Jesse Owens to the White House. This man had just ran and won these gold medals. He wasn't inviting Jesse Owens to the White House. There was no way. Black people were not working with FDR. They were working for FDR in the White House. So when a black person comes out as a Nazi sympathizer, as in favor of Hitler, as saying, oh, well, you know, he was an artist. He was a painter. He was nice before all of this stuff happened. It blows my mind. It blows my, because that's, that's anti-black rhetoric right there. This man did not like us. He didn't respect us. It doesn't matter if someone smiles in your face and says, thank you, you've done, you've done a very good job. It doesn't matter if someone shakes your hand. What they do to people who look like you is what matters. And in Germany, yes, there were black people in Germany during Hitler's time. And you know what he did? He put them in concentration camps. He kept them out of positions of power, kept them from having jobs. Black people were not drafted into the SS. They were not wanted, just like Jews were not wanted. And imagine you're a Jewish person trying to escape this. You see this coming. You see them pushing you out of your homes. So what do you do? Oh, you're going to go to another country, right? And one of those countries you're going to go to maybe is the United States. But the United States sees all these Jewish people coming and there's already this attitude about immigrants, this negative attitude about immigrants building on our shores. What do they do? They close the borders. They close the borders to Jewish immigrants. So now these people have nowhere to go. They have nowhere. To, they have to go back. They have to go back. They have to go back to Germany, Poland, England, France. And who's coming for them in those countries? Hitler. Hitler is coming for them. Hitler is coming for them. 
What did we do? We did nothing. We did not get involved. We didn't want to be involved. I don't even think, well, I mean, we knew because we had intelligence. We knew what was going on. But concentration camps, that was something so foreign to us, even though we had later put Japanese Americans, Japanese immigrants into internment camps. The thought of gassing people, putting people in ovens or poisoning them to to death just because of who they were didn't occur to us. We could subjugate people. We could enslave people. We could make people live in neighborhoods where it's just them and no whites. We could make people drink from separate water fountains and go to separate schools, but kill them because of their race or their religion? Oh, no, that's that's taking it a bit too far. So we had no idea what concentration camps were. And then Japan dropped the bomb on Pearl Harbor and we had to get involved in the war. We had to get involved. And because Japan was aligned with Germany and Italy, I mean, we had to get involved. We had to, I won't say we had to drop bombs, but that's what we did. That's what the fuck happened. And when Hitler was stopped and U.S. soldiers, particularly black soldiers, went into the concentration camps. Oh, my God. What they saw, what they witnessed was something they had never, they had no idea. You know, a lot of soldiers were either drafted or they entered the armed services after, after they graduated and they were immediately sent to war. They had no idea where they were going. And like I said, the war, it would, the armed services were segregated. So a lot of people who were just there to be cooks and, and cleaners and, and whatever the hell else, they were suddenly fighting. They were suddenly fighting. They didn't have a choice. But then back home, they were treated poorly. They came back home. They didn't have parades. They didn't have people marching for them. They didn't have people setting them up for success after they served in the military. But that's not the point of this. The point of this is Hitler didn't give a fuck about black people to the point that he would kill them. He killed them. He ordered anyone who was not white. Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, anyone who was not German, he did not like you. He didn't want you around. He didn't believe in your humanity. He didn't believe that you were even human. He thought you were less than human. He would have used your teeth for dentures. That is not someone that you stand up for. That is not someone that you find good qualities in. There's no good quality. The worst person on earth their good, whatever good they did, is outweighed by the bad. This is why you always want to do more good than bad. Doesn't matter what good you do. Doesn't matter what you do. The bad is your legacy. The bad, what you did, the evil that you did, is your legacy. And Hitler has an ugly, awful, disgusting legacy that does not need to be admired. It doesn't need to be thought of lovingly. Nazis don't need sympathy. We still hunt Nazis. The International Criminal Court, The Hague, they still hunt Nazis. There are people who were SS soldiers who are, you know, 101 years old. They don't give a fuck. They will prosecute you. They'll bring you to justice. They will prosecute you. It doesn't matter. That's how bad the situation was during World War II. That's how evil and ugly. The capacity for human evil was right there. And for once, people actually got to see it and take pictures of it. There was, um, so going back to my story about my English teacher, she wanted us to have, um, just to understand a little bit more about what the Holocaust, the effects of the Holocaust, and hear some people relate their stories. And she hosted for a group of kids, whoever wanted to go. It was held at the East Cleveland Library. And I wish I could remember the soldier's name. I have been racking my brain trying to remember it. But there were a few of the black soldiers who wrote about their experiences during World War II in the concentration camps. And um, 
they gave testimony to The Hague as well. And one of those soldiers had written a book and he came to speak at the East Cleveland Library. And me and some classmates went with our teacher to hear him speak. And there were photographs. And the story that he told about, I, you can't even describe that thing that you see when you first happen. You don't, you, you don't know what a concentration camp is. You don't know what you're going to happen upon when you go there. And you go there and you see emaciated bodies, skele- people looking skeletal. You know, they were described as having um, pajama-like outfits on. But they were so emaciated that you could just, you could see their bones. You could see their bones through their skin. And this is what he talked about. He talked about his experience. And I left from listening to him talk with, I mean, my mind was so, that entire experience during my 11th grade year just completely changed my mind about a lot of things, is that we all have a struggle. We all have something that happened. We are all from a legacy. So many of us are from a legacy of hate. I'm, I'm the direct descendant of American slaves. And on my mother's side, slave owners, too. That's a legacy of hate, disgusting, deplorable acts, the depths of human evil that we have to atone for. We have to talk about it. We have to explore it. But it has happened to so many of us that a lot of people just don't even want to, they don't want to hear about it. When you say racism, when you say anti-Semitism, when you say slavery, people roll their eyes. Especially when you say racism and anti-Semitism, people roll, oh my God, I'm not racist. Oh my God, I don't hate Jewish people. Oh my God. But hey, the proof is in the pudding. If you go to the Department of Justice website, they have an entire task force that's just for hate crimes, just for hate crimes. And case after case after case after case, there are so many hate crimes being perpetuated against all different kinds of groups in the United States that it's a wonder any of us like each other. How are, how are any of us getting along? How are any of us coming together? There are hate crimes against disabled people, Jewish people, obviously, Muslims, gay people, black people, Hispanics, Indians, Pacific Islanders. It is incredible. For, for, and for anyone to say, you know, this is a post-racial society. We don't need to talk about these things because we don't want to make white people feel guilty. It's not just that white people are the perpetrators of this. We all are. We're all doing this shit. Those lists of hate crimes isn't just about, you know, white people, what white people have done to other people. No, we're all doing this. And so when someone gets on their horn and they're talking big and loud about how we should find good in people on both sides. Remember when Trump said that there are good people on both sides? When you're sympathizing with people who only perpetuate hate against others, you're giving their thoughts, their speech, you're giving them a haven. You're giving them credit. You're giving them credence. You're you're allowing them to have credibility. And what happens with thoughts and speech? They become actions. This rise in hate crimes in the United States and around the world, actually, is not a coincidence. It's the rhetoric that's on the rise. And so the hate crimes are on the rise. People aren't just going out and doing these things. They're going out and doing them because they feel empowered. They feel empowered by things they've read in the newspapers, things they've heard from family members or political leaders things they've seen on TV. When people are allowed to get away with these things and law enforcement can't do anything, obviously, you can't sue someone because they had a bad thought about you. These things go unchecked. We're not talking about this in school, obviously, because we don't want to make people feel guilty. 
So instead, we make them feel like it's okay. Make them feel like it's okay. But unfortunately, words don't stay in the bottle, honey. They come out as actions. And when people feel empowered by, let's say, celebrities to feel this way, they don't just stop at saying some shit on Twitter or going on Alex Jones's show and saying some shit. No, you're going to find where there is a rise in the rhetoric in the words, you're going to find more hate crimes. You think the hate crimes against Asian Americans in the United States just came out of nowhere all of a sudden? No. It's because an idiot got on TV and was blaming Chinese people for uh, COVID-19, bringing it to the United States, the China virus, calling it the China virus, and then members of Congress reiterating that, and then other members of the government reiterating that, and then that gets into people's head. And suddenly, oh, well, look, we have someone to blame. And so what do you do with that? You're going to make them pay. You want to make them pay. That's how it starts. It starts with the words. And it ends usually with someone losing their life. Because of who they are. The capacity for human evil goes deep. And it starts with words. Last week at a masjid in New Jersey, um, someone in a truck one of those trucks that has this, the, the TV screens on it, went to this masjid and was driving around the masjid into the parking lot of the masjid, playing footage from a terror attack that happened in India. Yeah, we're in the United States. This is New Jersey. They're playing footage from a terror attack that happened in, in India, seemingly trying to connect that community of mostly Bangladeshi and Indian Muslims to this terror attack in India, saying, I, I'm, I'm only guessing they're trying to make them feel guilty or uh, say that it's their fault, it's their community's fault. But this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. It starts with someone getting in your face and saying that you're less than or you're to blame for the, e- the evils and the ills of society. And we're going to do something about it. It's not just going to be that this person is driving around with this truck. People have set masjids on fire. People have destroyed masjids in the United States. People have done the same with synagogues. They've, you know, written on them, gone to Jewish, Jewish cemeteries and destroyed headstones. People don't stay with just the words. The words don't stay in the bottle. The words come out. They spill out into actions. And I'll tell you what, I don't know when it became an issue between Blacks and Jewish people that uh, Black people now are being more vocally anti-Semitic because, as I said before, there were U.S. soldiers during World War II, Black soldiers who helped liberate concentration camps, but there were also Jewish people who died fighting for Black Americans during the civil rights era of the 1960s. People who lost their life trying to register Blacks to vote, trying to desegregate schools, desegregate cities. There were, we, we worked together. We worked together. We participated in each other's liberation. We saw each other struggling and we helped each other. So how it is now that we find ourselves on opposite ends of this struggle, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's a regional thing. I mean, I live in Northeast Ohio and there is a sizable Jewish population and a sizable black population. And we all get along. We live, we coexist, whatever you want to call it. We're good. Maybe in other areas, there's some reason for the tensions. I don't know. But here, we're good. <laughs> and I won't even say it's because the, 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 Jewish, community is, the Jewish community is kind of insulated. It's, it's not. I mean, 
black people go to stores that are owned by Jewish people. The Jewish people go to public schools and it's we're we're together, man. I don't know. I don't know where this shit is coming from. Like it is so strange to me. It is so strange to me because I don't see that where I live at. I see Jewish people and black people working together. We're working together to rise in equality, to ensure that uh, both of our people have educational opportunities that are equal, that have social opportunities that are equal, that people are treated fairly. I mean, I could kind of see like, you know, I have a my friend Victoria, she's from New York, and she's lent me some um, insight into this. But still, it's, I mean, a lot of it, I think, comes down to prejudice. There is that certain belief, right, that Jews own the media, they run the media, they run the banks. Blah, 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 blah. Let me tell you something. Jewish people may have started these movie production companies, but it was really out of necessity because they weren't allowed to do shit else. Jewish immigrants weren't being hired to be doctors and nurses and teachers and shit. No, Americans didn't like just uh, Americans didn't like a lot of the immigrant groups who came to the United States. Jewish people were one of them because there was this distrust for Jewish people. There was this huge distrust for Jewish people, distrust, dislike. So, yeah, they may have started these production companies, but guess what? The directors were not Jewish. The actors were not Jewish. The production people were not Jewish. There's a difference between owning and running. There's a difference between, yeah, I started this, but look who are the people in power. There's a difference. Yeah, we, we started this bank, but look who's running it. Look who the bankers are. Yeah, we started this, but look who's running the newspapers. Yeah, we own this, but look who's running it. Look who most of the reporters are. Look who most of the, the journalists are. So your attitude about Jews running everything and blacks having nothing is actually wrong. Black people have a lot of economic power in the United States of America. We don't use it very well. And again, it all comes back to American, good old-fashioned white American racism, systemic racism that has caused people to not understand that they have power. It's made you feel like you don't have any. You have been depowered. You have been divested of your power. You're into seeking validation, and that concedes your power. We're so busy trying to impress these motherfuckers that we don't know that we have this economic and social power in us that if we just focused on increasing and growing as a community, that we could be where anyone else is. We could be where anyone else is. But our whole attitude is that, well, nobody wants us to have anything. That's true to a certain extent, but it doesn't matter if they want you to have it or not. You already have it. You just need to claim it and use it to your advantage. Remember what I said about Kanye West when he had that idea for shoes and he had that idea for clothes. Where did he go? He went to Adidas. He went to the Gap. He didn't go to, you know, dude who's selling T-shirts in the gas station down the street from me. <laughs> he didn't go to Black-owned shoe brands. And there are plenty of Black-owned shoe brands, clothing brands, anywhere. He could have gone anywhere in the community and made these companies billion-dollar companies. He went to the white people. And this is the person you're defending. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, it's about economics. Okay, if it's about economics. Where is he now with his economics? You know, those white dollars come with a lot of rules. They come with a lot of rules. A lot of shit you can't say. A lot of shit you can't do. 
And he's finding that out now, isn't he? Listen. Oh, not that whatever he said is right. It isn't. Black people should hold his ass accountable, too. But I'm saying you could have come to us and we would have held you down, man. Not me, because I don't like that motherfucker, but whatever. Ah, <laughs> oh, but I just, I got so angry when I heard, I was here seeing black people say, you know, well, what Kanye West is saying is right about Hitler and the Jews and, and, and Jewish people, they run the media and they're in Hollywood and they don't want us to have a voice. And it's, what? Where are you getting this from? I want, I just, I just want you guys to experience what I had to experience in order for my mind to be opened. I had to read some fucking books. I had to listen to people talk about the horrors that they witnessed during the Holocaust, about how they witnessed people's emaciated bodies thrown about when they went to free a fucking concentration camp so that I understood why it was important for us to have empathy and sympathy for those who do not look like us. And maybe that's what you people need. Maybe that's what you need. You need some sensitivity training. I know people laugh at this, but it works. It works. You have, we have become so desensitized to not only our own struggles, but other people's struggles, that we have become cynical about it. We have become flippant about it. We have this chip on our shoulders about, oh, well, nobody, we, nobody wants us to talk about slavery, but we sure do have to hear about the Holocaust all the time. Do you? How about you hear about the Holocaust all the time because we don't want that shit to ever happen again? People really need to understand how bad it was, how terrible that was, how awful that was, how that changed the course of the entire world so that it does not ever happen again. And it is the same with slavery. Not only teach about slavery, but the effects, the negative impact that had on the entire country, the world even. So that that shit never happens again. If you don't learn about it, if you don't hear about it, when it happens again, you're going to think that this is something new. You're going to think that this is something new and that it's something okay, that's okay. Oh, this is, and, 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 and here's the thing. Black people, you think that if you side with Jew haters against Jewish people, that the Jew haters are somehow going to give you kudos? That they're going to side with you when they get rid of the Jews again? You think they're going to side with you? No, they're going to get rid of your ass too. They don't like you either. They don't like you either. We are equally despised. We are equally despised. So why are we working against each other? Why do we hate each other? Why is this hate present? Why are we sympathizing with the worst, worst human beings on earth? The most evil human beings on earth. The most oppressive people on earth. Why are we sympathizing with them? They don't deserve your sympathy. They deserve your ire. They deserve your condemnation. They deserve your condemnation. And I'll read this in closing because I have talked <laughs> for so long. I'll read this statement from I'll read this statement from William Alexander Scott III on the horrors of the Holocaust. He was a World War II veteran. He wrote uh, a pamphlet about the horrors of the Holocaust, and he also took photographs when he and his um, platoon went to Buchenwald to liberate the camps. It was April 11th, 1945. And they were ordered to 
the third army courier delivered a message to them to continue to a concentration camp called Buchenwald. He says, I was a reconnaissance sergeant, photographer, camouflure, and part-time historian in the S2 intelligence section of the 183rd Engineer Com- Combat Battalion. We were in the 8th Corps of the General George S. Patton's 3rd Army. As we rode into Buchenwald, I can remember thinking, there is no place as horrible as we have been told. No atrocities. We should turn around. Stop wasting time. Go back to Eisenach and established our battalion headquarters. But we continued and finally arrived at a place that did not look so bad as we passed the main entrance. But as we rolled around the front building, we saw the feeble mass of survivors milling around. We got out of our vehicles, and some began to beck to us to follow and see what had been done in that place. They were walking skeletons. The sights were beyond description. What little we had been told in an orientation session in northern France in early December 1944 was nothing in comparison. And I had thought no place could be this bad. I took out my camera and began to take some photos, but that only lasted for a few pictures. As the scenes became more gruesome, I put my camera in its case and walked in a daze with the survivors as we viewed all forms of dismemberment of the human body. We learned that 31,000 of the 51,000 persons there had been killed in a two-week period prior to our arrival. An SS trooper had remained until the day of our arrival. Survivors had captured him. As he tried to flee over a fence, he was taken into a building, and two men from my unit followed. They said he was trampled to death by the survivors. I began to realize why few, if any people, would believe the atrocities I had seen. Holocaust was the word used to describe it. I began to realize why few, if any people, would believe the atrocities I had seen. Holocaust was the word used to describe it. But one has to witness it to even begin to believe it. And finally, after going through several buildings with various displays, lampshades of human skin, incinerators choked with human bones, dissected heads and bodies, testes in labeled bottles so that they could be seen by the victims on a shelf by the door as they went in and out of the barracks. After two weeks of this procedure, they would be killed, but we arrived before this ritual could be continued. My mind closed the door on this horror. Even though my ancestors had arrived in our country, the United States of America, as slaves in chains from Africa, and subjected to torture and death during the long centuries of slavery, it all seemed to pale in comparison to the glaring impact of what I had witnessed at Buchenwald. I later learned about other death facilities, including the monstrous Auschwitz. My slave ancestors, despite the horrors they were subjected to, had value and were listed among the assets of a slaveholder. Had the Nazi position prevailed in the aftermath of the U.S. Civil War, my slave great-grandfather and namesake, William Alexander Scott, fought with the Union Army in Mississippi, I or others in similar situations would not exist in the world today. The earth would have literally become the forbidden planet where no humans would exist. My life, as I have contemplated the impact of past events on it, has evolved into a character that exhibits an attitude to fellow humans that they have nothing to fear from me or my family. I am only one. But my wife and our children, their children, have the character and function that no one should fear them. They have no designs on others or their families. Another soldier named Leon Bass 
made the statements, the following statements on a podcast hosted by Aaron Harper of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, 12 years that shook the world. Leon Bass stated, I walked through the gates and I saw walking dead people. And just looking at these people who are skin and bone and dressed in those pajama-type uniforms, their heads clean-shaved and filled with sores due to malnutrition. And it was very difficult for me to comprehend what was going on. I just looked at this in amazement and I said to myself, you know, my God, who are these people? What have they done? See, Adolf Hitler believed in the false theory that the world is divided into distinct races that are not equally strong and valuable. He believed that his own so-called German Aryan master race was superior and that in order to remain racially pure, the Nazis had to protect Germans from alleged inferior races. So the Nazis were murdering and imprisoning those groups of people, Jews, Poles, Roma, and Sinti, because the Nazis deemed them to be racially inferior. A number of Holocaust survivors from Buchenwald testified that their encounters were with African-American soldiers on that day were those of relief. They were delighted. They were happy to see these soldiers. And it was important for this testimony to be made because there were people who were, would argue that these soldiers did not help liberate the camps, that the camps were already liberated when they got there. And that was not the truth. They were still being, there were still people being put to death. They were still people who believed that they were about to die. And it wasn't until they saw these soldiers, it wasn't until they saw these soldiers that they knew they were saved. And so when people come out saying that Hitler was a nice guy and Nazis are nice people, it is such an affront to the ideals that helped free these people from these camps that made these soldiers want to go into these camps to free these people. It is such an affront to the work that they did, to the sacrifices they made for each other, to the sacrifices in all of our struggles that we make for each other. It is such an affront to that, that it must be stopped. So wherever you are, whoever you are with, when you hear this rhetoric, when you hear people talking like that, call them out on their shit. Call them out on it. Don't participate in it. Don't be silent either because silence is complicity. We know that. We saw that during the summer of George Floyd when there were people who did not speak up. There were people who said nothing. Or there were people who were like, uh, it's not such a big deal. Maybe if he hadn't done this and maybe if he hadn't done that, da 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 da. There were people who spoke against us, who spoke against us having justice who looked at our injustices and called them no big deal. They dismissed them. They dismissed what had happened to us, what continues to happen to us. Do not allow this rhetoric to go unchecked. And yes, people are free to say whatever they want. You can say whatever the crackerjack hell you want to say. But I don't have to be silent about it. I can speak up. I can say something. I can educate myself. I can grow in empathy for people who have struggled as I have struggled, who continue to struggle because of who they are, because of what they look like. I can have sympathy for them. I can show them compassion. I can be the compassionate person I claim to be. This is where it starts. Before these thoughts become Word Before these thoughts become words that become actions, that become the capacity for human evil that is shown on hate crime after hate crime after hate crime that is perpetuated against groups of people and individuals in the United States, before it gets to that point, we need to say stop. We need to stop it. And yeah, maybe that means a person who says you smash your head against a cement block on Twitter, their account gets locked out. But I'll tell you, 
since Elon Musk took over Twitter, there has been a rise in hate speech on the platform. And who has it been directed towards the most? Black people. Yeah, there were people just waiting to say the N-word, just waiting to say nigger. Couldn't wait. Couldn't wait to type it over and over and over and over and over again. This is what people are waiting for. They're waiting to be able to use words against you and you cannot let them. But then don't you also become the ugliness that they display? We can be better and we can be better together. And this has been Ayana Explains It All, brought to you by Facts, Figures, and Enlightenment. Take care.